Welcome back. This is episode five. Yes, episode five. With Davis Quinton. And today we'll be talking about bipolar disorder. So Davis shares his experience with bipolar, how it came about, how it's changed his life, and how he continues to cope and function day to day. He also goes a little bit into crypto, which is an interest that he took up some time ago, and he's now very involved in the crypto world. And we sort of discovered some interesting parallels between the mindset of a bipolar person and the world of crypto. So I found it pretty fascinating, and I was really happy that Davis was able to share his story. So I hope you guys enjoy. Here's Davis Quinton. Morning, Davis. Thanks so much for joining me. No worries, man. It's good to see you again. Yeah, you too. Um, So I wanted to get you on today to talk a little bit about bipolar. Um, And... This is something you've obviously had some experience with and I'm going in pretty much blind. Like I know a little bit, um, but perhaps there's some things that could be clarified and I would love to just learn a little bit about, you know, how it affects your day-to-day life and maybe some misconceptions um, and that sort of thing. So maybe you want to start by maybe describing your history with bipolar yeah so i'll just try to kind of ground the listener here in time and space um i'm 27 years old i'm from the u.s uh i've been to uni as well and graduated but all throughout uni including a couple years after uh bipolar wasn't really on the radar for me um I didn't have any intense manic episodes that I was really aware of yet. And, and, you know, in my mind, the fact that I was at university doing well, graduating, getting a degree, all those were signs of the fact that, you know, I was more neurotypical. Everything was fine. Everything was going okay. I felt like I had control. Um, And then, you know, without getting into too much of my backstory here, basically like growing up, it was always kind of assumed by my parents that I would go to university. Um, That was in some way kind of the end of the planned path for me. So after university, once I got out on my own, I think that's kind of the beginning of once I started to realize kind of what the symptoms of bipolar were and how it affected my personal life. Um, So I thought that law school was the move for me. I moved to Sydney, Australia, got enrolled in law school. I wanted to get into human rights. Uh, And then everything really started taking a turn once COVID started. Um, You know, I think everybody's kind of got their own COVID story. Uh, But for me, it was kind of the beginning of my mental health journey and taking my mental health seriously. Uh, So really, once lockdown hit and my law school plans were disrupted, that's kind of what I would point to as the beginning of my first intense manic episode that really would rock me all the way to my core. Um, but, you know, as we'll get into, it was it was nothing but a good thing. So mm. basically what happened is structure. I realized structure was really important for my life. Uh, before uni, I was in a boarding school that was very regimented, very structured. 
then obviously university with the classes and everything was very structured. Uh, law school was very structured, but then COVID hit and everything slowed down and suddenly nothing was structured anymore. Um, it was just these long days of lockdown. I was trying to balance remote work um, for my sales job at the time, along with remote studying for uni, uh, all while living with my girlfriend's parents. And at this point in time, we were unsure about the severity of COVID as well. I wasn't mm-hmm. sure if I'd ever see my family again back in the U.S. Uh, so a lot of intense stress factors uh, were, were hitting me. And I think that's kind of what triggered my break, uh, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. I ended up dropping out of uni, quit my job, and got obsessed with trying to start a dog walking company called Stroll. Mm. <laughs> and when I say obsessed, I mean, I spent literally like two or three months just on the logo, the color scheme, uh, the details. Mm. Instead of actually going out and trying to start getting clients, I was just hyper-focusing and obsessing uh, on the most, I'm not going to say trivial, but on the, on the subtle details. Mm. I was really getting lost in the weeds there. And at the same time, I think my my personality was deteriorating. I was definitely harder to be around. Mm. Um, I was, you know, getting more agitated, more irritable and stuff like that. Um, and then there's also kind of like a this is where the mania started to creep in. So I didn't realize it at that point in time. Um, but I started kind of losing my grip on rationality, for example, numbers started having a lot more meaning to me at that point in time um you know i know a lot of people out there are really into numerology and i'm I'm not knocking that in any way whatsoever but just from my personal perspective um to try to give you a better idea of what it's like in the manic state when i was not manic previously no interest whatsoever in numbers you know just mm-hmm. just another day in the life right. uh but once in those months was once i started getting more manic if you'd be walking down the street, you'd see a certain number and you would interpret it as some sort of a sign from the beyond, you know, some mm-hmm. sort of a message uh, that somebody or something is trying to convey to you. And that's kind of the manic headspace for me is, um, you know, trying to take things that don't necessarily have a meaning and make them have a meaning that kind of fits your narrative at mm-hmm. that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um so this has been a bit of a ramble between between history and answering your question. Um, but basically, yeah, so that was my first manic episode during those months of COVID when I was really stressed out by a, a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't sleeping much. I was, you know, I was sleeping maybe three or four hours a night, um, just constantly really charging with energy. Mm. Yeah, that's how I'd characterize those, those moments. Yeah. Wow, okay. So interesting. So you describe the initial kind of manic onset. Um, and I remember during this time when you're working on Stroll, um, how obsessed you were um, with that whole project. And I guess in some ways it was really cool to see, like you'd be really inspired, but I guess there was the other side of it where um, perhaps there was details that were being focused on that maybe weren't so important at the start. Um, so, I guess I'm curious as to how did you perceive that in the moment as opposed to how is it perceived now and what has happened in between? So was there sort of a period after that in which you were looking for a diagnosis and then 
after talking to professionals, you sort of made sense of all this stuff that had happened or how did that sort of play out professionally? <clears throat> so really it took me going back home to the U S um, and once I went back home, my parents' place is out in the country, like far deep country, nothing around. And so my life really slowed down and stopped. Um, I don't have any mates back home either, just because I went to university abroad and boarding school before that. So I, I know nobody where my parents live in that part of the country. Um, so I went back, got a really boring job processing loans for a bank. So I was quite literally sitting in my parents' basement with very little interaction. And I had a really big swing low, probably the biggest ever in my life up until that point. Um, like chronic depression, I just was sleeping all day. I would wake up and, you know, maybe be awake for an hour or two before I went back to my bed. That was mm. just my day for a couple of months. Mm. And in that period, the one thing that was kind of kept keeping my interest and attention was crypto. I got mm. really into crypto. Mm-hmm. Um and long story short, without getting into the weeds here, I turned about $5,000 into $80,000 overnight. And then that weekend lost everything. Um, wow. Just had no idea what I was doing. I was in way over my head, got lucky, and then proceeded to lose everything. And that experience uh, gave me a, a pretty intense panic attack. Um, mm. I think I might have had one or two before, but this was definitely the biggest I've ever had. It was kind of like crippling. Um, and so I went to the hospital, I told them how depressed I'd been in the months leading up to that as well. And they prescribed me, um, Zoloft and SSRI because, mm-hmm. uh, depression runs in my family. That's what some of my family members are taking as well. They just assumed it was kind of, you know, the same deal as the rest of my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, the doctor told me that it would take about two weeks to start kicking in, um, and he said, there's really nothing you can do. Sorry, you're just going to kind of have to tough it out for two weeks. Mm. Um, so I started taking it. And within two days, it felt like I was coming up on, you know, like MDMA or something like that. Like mm. it was such an intense swing for me mm. going from really depressed, no motivation, completely lethargic to suddenly, you know, like running through the forest <laughs> behind our house, like <laughs> just exuberant. Um, but I knew I knew that swing was too much. Like I, I, yeah. I just knew that that was like, especially because he just prefaced it saying it would take two weeks to kick in. I was like, okay, he, he was really like saying this would be mild, but two days here, two days in, here I am. I'm um, two days into so the come up, and it's a two week come up. Exactly. So uh, that's when I reached out to a psychiatrist for the first time because I was like, okay, this is a, this is above my GP's head. This is not right. I need to actually speak to a to an expert here. Um, so I reached out to a psychiatrist, kind of told him everything that had been going on. Um, when I was like, yeah, my my girlfriend in Sydney thinks that I might have bipolar. He's like, oh, we hear that from girlfriends a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but then uh, once I started kind of telling him more of the details of, of my my experience and how things have been going for me started taking things more seriously, especially when I mentioned my reaction to the SSRI medication. He's like, okay, we're going to need to stop taking that right away. I think there might be something to the bipolar, uh, diagnosis because Mm. for people with bipolar, the SSRIs trigger mania. It, it's like, it's Uh, not the right medication basically. mm -hmm. So that was almost the tell that gave it away to answer your question. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so after that chat with him, I switched my medications to to mood stabilizers, and mm-hmm. that was about a year ago. I was actually just talking to Charlotte about this. That was about a year ago, and it's been great. Like it's definitely the right medication mm-hmm. for me. Um, nice. I I think my trajectory since then has not it's definitely not solely attributable to medication it's it's the variety of a lot of things i think uh kind mm-hmm. of like a holistic effort on my part to put my my uh foot forward and keep walking but mm-hmm. the medication is definitely uh helps along mm-hmm. the way for sure nice man yeah i think um that integrative approach of using an ssri or a mood stabilizer in conjunction with a better lifestyle tends to be the best result in the long term. Um, yeah, I definitely resonate as well with what you said about the mood shift being a little too much. Like I took SSRIs for a time and um, I noticed that I very similar feeling. I felt like I was on MDMA, like maybe 20% of a, of a pinger, like at all times. Um, and while in some ways it's tempting cause it's like, why wouldn't you want to feel like that? <laughs> and there's another part of your brain that's like, this is not right. Um, and it's, it's yeah, just man. a little, a little much. Yeah. Well, what I realized was the intense downswing that I experienced when I went back home, that was a function of the intense manic months that I spent in Sydney. You know, it was the come down from that. And I haven't had too many manic episodes since then, to be honest. I've only had one or two. But for each one, right after it wraps up, I notice that there's a bit of a down that's about the same caliber. And mm. so what I've really been trying to focus on in the past year is just staying in between the lines and just staying yeah. as level as possible because mm-hmm. the more I'm able to stay the level, the less the fluctuations, uh, the symptoms sure. of the mood swings are. Gotcha, yeah. So take me through maybe like what it feels like to have one of these episodes if if that's okay because you know in my head um i'm finding it a little bit hard to conceptualize because you know the mania is obviously associated with some sort of feeling of euphoria and bliss and positivity but also there's must be some kind of negative affect to it right like as you're experiencing it it, like is that does that come from sort of this idea of like, oh shit, I know that I'm about to crash and burn after this? Or is it, is there other sort of negative feelings there? Not really. I think to try to get an idea of the manic head state, anybody that's ever had an LSD trip, it's a very similar headspace uh, in the sense that you have a lot of energy, you have a lot of racing thoughts, you have a lot of excitement. And then also if things go against you, it's easy to quickly snap and kind of lose your cool. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that would be more of the negative side of the manic mindset has to do with like irritability. Mm -hmm. I would say for me primarily, especially because when I am manic, I'm usually pretty worked up or excited about one idea or something in particular. And Mm -hmm. if somebody's to come in and try to, you know, step on that or say something that goes against my excitement for that idea, Mm -hmm. then I would get, irritable quickly and probably snap Mm. at them um Mm. and you know just looking back growing up like i've always kind of had a short temper 
towards my mom and that's been like a like a thing in our family you know that I'll talk back and stuff like that but like I love my mom you know I I I never mean anything deeper than my reaction but I Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. in terms of the the uncontrollable nature of that first jab that initial reaction to things that's definitely Mm -hmm. something that I've noticed has you know I feel like I've gotten more control over in the past year um, since mm. I've been aware of this diagnosis and you know started mm. having therapy and medication and all of the above, um, nice. So yeah, like in terms of the negative aspects of the manic headset mindset, uh, I would say yeah, like irritability and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, it must be hard. I mean, I think even in a quote unquote normal state, a lot of people struggle with reactivity and kind of defensiveness as well um you know when their ideas are challenged particularly when they're in a emotionally heightened state it's really hard for them to see oh this person's trying to help me like let me take a second to respond in a, like a sort of mindful and meaningful way um the the gut reaction or the instinctive reaction is this person is threatening me like this person thinks that i suck and like they need to you know hear about it right um, so I can only imagine, you know, a heightened state of that would be really tricky to do with, cause I'm sure you see other people around you probably just trying to help. Right. Um, you know, in, in an objective frame of mind, you could sort of see that, but then in your manic state, perhaps it's perceived as this huge, huge problem. <clears throat> yeah, that, and I will say another kind of symptom that I've noticed since I've been, let me just preface this whole thing by saying this whole journey for me, this, like going through the process of getting diagnosed and coming to terms with it has definitely increased my self-awareness quite a bit, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, you know, now I'm always kind of paying attention to what sort of mood I'm in as before that was more just on autopilot. Mm-hmm. Um, with that being said, I've noticed kind of another symptom of the bipolar is my my mood can snowball kind of quickly so like if somebody does come in say something that i misperceive i can easily just sit there in my own head and keep running the scenario through my mind snowballing or replaying what happened but also um, allowing the feelings to kind of um intensify around Mm -hmm. it basically Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh and so I guess that's kind of like breaking down the actual mood swing. If I really had to get into the minutia of it, that's what's happening is me right. replaying a scenario again through my mind and those emotions continue to amplify every time I replay mm-hmm. it, uh, mm-hmm. resulting in like a completely shifted mood. Yeah, I see. Yeah, it's kind of this idea of you're giving someone free rent in your brain and not only are you doing that, but every time they pay rent, they like pay less rent <laughs> it like gets, gets worse. And then they start trashing the yeah. house and like pissing on everything. <laughs> and, and, um, you know, it, it, and then in your mind, you're like, this housemate is terrible. Like what the hell? And you go and like complain to them and they're like, bro, like I've been paying rent on time. I've been paying the right amount. What are you talking about? And there's this kind of misperception or, and uh, I guess like a, a difference in, yeah, a difference in perception of, of the situation. And it must be hard, man. It must be really hard. Yeah, so I think for me personally, just learning how to kind of intercept that pattern and break it up, that's 
what I'm personally kind of working on in my own journey with things mm-hmm. is increasingly just trying to to lower the amount of time that that person has free rent in mm-hmm. my head. And, mm-hmm. um, but another thing I'll say is, you know, I felt, I really do feel significantly more in control of my symptoms and everything surrounding it now than I did a year ago. Um, when I was mm-hmm. first diagnosed, there's like a lot of fluctuations that I didn't really have self-confidence, but I think, you know, all the, the work I've been doing with crypto and really getting plugged into this, not just this job, but actually I feel like embarking on a career for the first time um, mm. has probably been the single most beneficial thing for me uh, mm. in terms of, you know, finding something I can really pour myself into every single day, day in and day out. Um, mm. Having that direction has been massive. Yeah, it seems like that's a constant theme is this um, structure that you need. Um, and I think that that's really great. I think that can serve a lot of benefits. Yeah, I would, I would say for me, bipolar and bipolar structure is kind of everything. Um, you know, like even down to the medication, like, so I'm taking Seroquel is the name of the medication and it's within an hour of taking it, you just knock the fuck out. So I take it, you know, around 10 o'clock every night, go to bed by 11, wake up at mm-hmm. seven. And as I mentioned before, I was sleeping like three to four hours when I was here last year and completely yeah. energized, but also like a, like a kind of a wired, erratic, mm. manic energy. Um, but yeah, like starting with that solid eight hours of sleep every night and then waking up and having a cup of coffee and getting right down to crypto is just, it's such a good structure for me. Um, it doesn't give my mind as much time to wonder as I had in the past. Mm. So... Tell me a little bit more about your crypto journey. I, I sort of had a, a thought um, when you were talking about, you know, how you made a bunch of money overnight and then you lost it. Um, in some ways, that kind of reminds me of the flow of the bipolar headspace in, in terms of its ups and downs. Um, That's a good good point. And I kind of, I wonder if... I mean, like, forgive me if it's out of line, but maybe there is a certain attraction to that sort of feeling for you. Would you say that that's right? Absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> so trading really is, it's a lot like your headspace. Um, you know, like I was very erratic, a lot of extremes back then in my mind and also in my portfolio mm-hmm. uh, since then have calm down in my mind and both in my trading strategy, which is a lot more conservative and slow and steady now. So mm-hmm. that's a good observation. There's definitely a parallel there. Um, for me, so going from being in law school, thinking I wanted to be a human rights lawyer to having all plans canceled, thrown into pretty deep depression. Mm-hmm. For me, crypto was the one thing that caught my attention because I really see the future potential of it and the use case. Mm. And I think it's a developing cutting edge industry with a lot of exploration left to be done. I like the fact that you can't necessarily get a degree to work in crypto. You just have to be passionate about it. So it's a it's a field full of passionate people at the moment, which I love. Mm. I I feed Mm. off of. Um, So that's what really, really drew me into it. And I just started learning more and more about it. You know, started off trading. That's how I made and lost the money. But in addition to trading was actually just learning about the underlying technology and fascinated by it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then there's this podcast I follow called The Scoop. And it's one of the, the kind of one of the premier crypto podcasts. It's still niche given it's a crypto podcast, but it's big in the in that circle. Mm. And the, the host of the podcast just posted on Twitter that they had a job opening. So I listened mm. to the most recent episode, wrote kind of like a sample article on it and sent it to him on Twitter. Just reached out on Twitter in his DMs, slid into his nice. DMs. <laughs> and... Uh, we kind of hit it off. We had a little banter going back and forth. And he's like, all right, let's just, let's set up an interview. Um, and while, you know, I was expecting kind of this to just be a crypto thing. I didn't know how on the books or off the books it was. I was kind of surprised to find that the block was actually, you know, one of the industry leading journalist companies in crypto. Um, mm. I didn't really have any training in journalism per se, but I did have, you know, the crypto knowledge that I'd been accumulating over the past year while working yeah. in my parents' basement. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so I had three interviews with them, uh, two different rounds. And yeah, definitely the most intense hiring process I've been through in my life. But I think wow. my passion for crypto and everything shone through. And that was, you know, that's what they're really looking for at the end of the day. So it's been a great fit working on the podcast with Frank and I'm just learning a ton there every single day. I'm loving it. That's awesome, man. Uh, I th- that makes me really happy. Um, and you know, to kind of have this self-made perspective on it as well. Like, I mean, like you said, there's no crypto degree that you can get at least just yet. Um, but you know, I think it, it, it's, it feels nice because it's like that, depressive period wasn't wasted you know um and you know you have all this stuff you can show for it and you know i think from a reflective state of mind you can say oh well you know like i kind of needed that period to you know sit around and just research crypto and just get more and more interested so that i could lead to where i am now absolutely man like when i say i was obsessed with it i'm talking you know probably Mm. 15 to 20 hours a day just sitting there learning about all this different stuff and at the time as well I definitely didn't see the upside I wasn't planning on working in crypto or anything like that I was legitimately Mm -hmm. just you know browsing the internet um yeah but as that's a that's a good point as you're saying reflection wise I that was definitely the deepest and darkest depression that I've ever been in and there was absolutely no hope at that point in time that things are going to change um Mm. all my friends are still in australia i kept applying for traveling exemptions to come i applied five separate times and got turned down every time Wow! and after the fifth one i was just so hopeless i kind of i just felt like everything i wanted was around the world and complete completely inaccessible at that point in time Mm. um but as you were saying that solitude was exactly what i needed to kind of learn everything about this developing industry Mm. And even though I didn't recognize it at the time, it enabled me to get to this position now, which is definitely the most satisfied I've ever been in terms of professional um, aspects and and prospects and stuff. Nice, man. Yeah, that's awesome. I kind of wonder um, with crypto, I like I know that there's a lot of buzz and hype and then there's a lot of real good work being done there's a lot of scams and then there's a lot of legitimate opportunities what was it in your kind of research process that helped you pick apart those sorts of things because i think that there's a bit of a barrier to entry for people that seem to want to be interested 
um, because there's a lot of kind of different aspects and some of them are not so wholesome. Absolutely. So I think for me, fundamentally and almost philosophically, what crypto is, is you have to understand the blockchain technology underneath the crypto to really understand why this is going to be such a useful thing. And what the blockchain basically is, is a ledger. A ledger has been at the center of society for almost as long as we've had society, right? So a ledger is who owns what, and it just keeps track of who owns what, right? So traditionally, that's kept, you know, in, in the, the city council somewhere, right? It's, it's kept and you can go and there's archives of who owns what land and who has the plots and stuff like that. The idea of the blockchain is taking a ledger and instead of having it stored in one place, it's stored decentralized on a bunch of computers of everybody supporting the network. So everybody who is using a computer to support, let's just use Bitcoin as an example, all of the people running Bitcoin nodes, they're each keeping track of a ledger of who owns what coins, right? Mm-hmm. By hard code, there's 21 million. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. So essentially, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network is a ledger system that shows who owns which Bitcoins by math, like unquestionable quantum proof math. Um, so that for me is kind of the, the center understanding. And now why that's important is because nobody can change that. It's immutable. There's no one entity that could ever make an adjustment to the Bitcoin ledger. I think increasingly that's going to become valuable in society. You know, like if you look at, for example, the protests, the Canadian truck protests that happened last year where the Canadian government shut down these truckers' bank accounts, shut down the bank accounts of people that were trying to donate to them. You know, stuff like that can't happen on an immutable decentralized ledger. Stuff like that can happen on a centralized state-run ledger um, can you help I me think, understand understand that a little bit deeper I, I i don't really get um like what would be the difference in that particular scenario yeah well okay well let's use ukraine for an example and what's mm-hmm. happening in ukraine we were able to kick russia off the payment system it's called swift it's the payment rails that countries use to transfer money between their banks we were able to just kick russia off of it straight up mm-hmm. and we were able to freeze the bank accounts of all the Russian oligarchs and their assets around the world. Mm. Now, I'm not, I'm not getting into the, the morality of whether or not that's the right thing to do. I'm just saying that we have that power. And mm. so what people have been kind of talking about is the weaponization of the dollar. That's kind of the conversation around that. And they're saying, look, the dollar can be weaponized to you know freeze people's assets, to try to, to motivate them to do certain things by locking up their purchasing power or their assets mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You can't do something like that with a blockchain. You can, there's no, there's no way you can just freeze one person's assets on chain. They're self, if they're self custodied, if you have them, you know, if you're in control of your own coins, there's no way that an outside entity can decide, Hey, this person needs to have their financial assets or their wealth frozen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so that I think is the fundamental, you know, people say that crypto doesn't have a use case. I think that is its fundamental use case is almost as an insurance policy against centralized control, being able to lock down some element of your wealth. Mm. 
Yeah, I can I can certainly see how that would be powerful and applicable to a lot of different situations. Um, and then I guess there's kind of the, um, I guess the more financial side, like a lot of people do just want to kind of get rich uh, from crypto, right? Which is like not, not a bad thing necessarily. Um, but I suppose there are a lot of critics um, who maybe say, you know, how is it different to just gambling um, and that sort of thing. So what would you say to that? Yeah, so I think, you know, part of the reason crypto is great is also part of the reason why people get scammed. And it's because it really places the power and the responsibility on the individual to make informed decisions with their coins, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you actually are researching and are comfortable with everything that you're using and know how it's working, you're not going to have any issues. If you're just using the product, but you're unclear on how it works, you know, then it's very likely that you could get scammed if you don't know mm. what you're doing and why. So I think the people that there definitely is an element of using crypto as a casino. There's no denying that mm. there's a lot of speculators that are in the space because, you know, it has been the best performing asset. Bitcoin is the best performing asset ever historically mm. in this mm. po at this point in time in terms of growth. Um, mm. So, you know, undeniably, that's going to draw in speculators to the space. I do think that there is a core community that is more in this for kind of the decentralization ethos that I was trying to describe before. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's kind of like a like a saying in crypto, in it for the tech. There's some people that are in it right. for the tech and there's some people that are speculators. Um, gotcha. I think increasingly as the asset class gets more established, there'll be less volatility and so speculators mm. will be less interested in it because the, mm. the gains, the the rises and the falls will be um less less volatile um so less mm -hmm. opportunity there yeah that makes a lot of sense i remember also you talking about uh crypto in gaming which is an interesting topic um yeah i if i understand correctly there's some sort of idea that perhaps or maybe in, in current games that are being developed but also in future games or future kind of game architecture there would be these some sort of value system that you have in your game whether it's gold or points some sort of tokens um that's used to progress in the game and purchase things um and a lot of people have this issue where they play these flavor of the month games and then as soon as they're they don't want to play the game anymore all that time and all those hours that they put into earning those things is now wasted um but there could be this idea of transferring that to another game so is that something that's sort of you know feasible or yeah so crypto gaming is actually something i'm really excited about personally at the moment i think that's the biggest opportunity in the crypto market and i also think it's going to be what is the catalyst for the next 100 million users coming into the space so mm. crypto gaming just to give a quick overview was pretty much at, up until this point has been characterized by this game called axie infinity um, it's out of the Philippines and during the pandemic, well, in general, uh, the average, you know, the average daily income in the Philippines is $7 a day during the Philipp uh, during the pandemic, people playing Axie infinity were able to make between 11 and $15 per day. Mm. Um, you know, so, so some people were doubling the, their average daily salary. there just mm -hmm. playing this game. 
Mm. At one point in time, at its peak popularity, 40% of the working population in the Philippines were playing this game. So it was massively impactful in the country. Um, Mm. The thing is, it was highly speculative and it kind of depended on this is why crypto also gets a bad a bad rap sometimes, but it depended on new people coming into the space to sustain the profits of the people that were already playing. Uh, so AKA a Ponzi, Ponzi-nomics, Ponzi design. Uh-huh. Uh, so once new people started coming in, the price of the token collapsed. A lot of people that quit their jobs previously went and begged for their jobs back, and it was a mess. Mm. So here's the thing that they didn't get right is the game itself wasn't fun to play right the -hmm. game was kind of like this grindy type mechanics where you just you just grind it out and if as long as you're making money you know it's it's sweet because you're you know you're grinding and you're making money it's it's like actually a job and so the style of this type of game that Axie kind of invented is called play to earn Mm -hmm. the problem with that is people are playing this game to earn the you know whatever the native token is and then they're immediately cashing it out back into their bank accounts right they're not playing the game because the game is fun to play. Mm. So mm. that for me is going to be the big paradigm shift in the next couple of months is we're going to start to see crypto games come out that are actually fun to play. AAA titles that these studios have been working on for you know the past couple of years. You can't just whip one of these things out overnight, right? Mm. Like making an actual fun game takes a while. But for the first time this year, we're going to start to see bigger titles that have been in development for a long time being released. And for the first time, these games will get people that want to keep their value in game. So mm. like, let's use like League of Legends, for an example, you buy skins on League of Legends, you have to keep that value in the game, you have no option to convert those skins to anything else, or to transfer mm. them out of game or anything like that. With crypto, if you bought a skin in game, it would be an NFT, which you could then sell to somebody else on a secondary market with no middleman required. You could just do a transaction with them straight mm-hmm. up. Um, that allows you to transfer value in and out of a game. But what will start to make these crypto games valuable is people will want to keep their value in game. Uh, so the mm-hmm. game economists I've been interviewing, they call this a value sink. And so the idea is the value that you're creating from generating the game, instead of cashing it out, like play to earn style, you will want to continue to level up your characters, continue to acquire better gear and keep all of that value in the game. Mm -hmm. That's going to make the price of these in-game tokens go up and stay up is because now suddenly you have a sustained user Mm -hmm. base. You're creating economies based around these tokens. There's, plenty of utility for them and people don't want to cash them out because they're like hey i want to accumulate these tokens so that i can be better in in the game be stronger in the game or what Mm. have you cool yeah that sounds dope like i would love to kind of see how that develops um i I do wonder though if these games like you say take a lot of time and money to develop um is it just that the companies that are making it are kind of already in the crypto space and they're confident about the technology and they're willing to take that gamble or uh, is there sort of some sort of um i don't know discussions going around where people are being convinced that this is a good way for game developers to proceed into the future yeah <clears throat> so we had a, a fund manager on our podcast recently that actually made an interesting point here there's a piece of software called ipfs and it's 
a part of mobile applications, basically. So it allows game developers for iPhone and Android to essentially um, generate more ad revenue from their games. There was recently a legal change around how developers are able to use that that actually helped enhance user privacy, but also diminished game developer ad revenue. So suddenly all these developers that are developing on mobile weren't able to make as much off advertisements anymore. And so now all there's like a, a herd of game developers looking for a new platform and new tech to build on. All of these mm. kind of smaller independent uh, people are more attracted to the blockchain because it's very easy to get revenue from the blockchain games. Right. So that right. is definitely one cohort of developers. The other thing that we're seeing a lot of in the space are more of the crypto native hedge funds and venture capitalists um, approach kind of traditional game designers, like non-blockchain game designers, and be like, hey, we have blockchain expertise, you have game development expertise, let's work together and build something. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're also seeing, like, essentially crypto-native advisors to non-blockchain gaming developers. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's cool to see the two worlds come together. Um, and, yeah. Yeah, and if you think about it, the what goes into building a good game, it's nothing necessarily blockchain specific. Like all of the stuff that goes into building a good game comes from game design that, you know, is, could, doesn't have to be blockchain related. It's mm -hmm. the people that have been building good games for years are going to be able to build good blockchain games. It's just those moments when, say, you go to the marketplace in the game for whatever reason, instead of that being just a, you know, a, a coded marketplace that lives inside of a game that's now an open marketplace that lives on the blockchain and is accessible to all other players. So it's it's those moments, like those interaction moments, um, you know, with either other players or in the marketplace and stuff like that, that's when the blockchain is going to come into play in these games. But the end goal here is you shouldn't necessarily even realize you're playing a blockchain game. It should just feel like you're playing a game that happens to be built on the blockchain. Mm. Yeah. And then I suppose there's uh, those extra elements of interactivity, like, oh, these are real people on the real marketplace and, you know, like, we're really trading. Um, and, you know, it kind of creates this extra element of, yeah, interactivity and perhaps immersion as well. Um, it kind of feels like you're part of a community thing. Immersion and, you know, just the global nature of the internet is something I heard from one of, we had this fund on that launched a $400 million crypto gaming fund specifically. And one of the, thing, the things the founder said was in the next 10 to 15 years, he thinks that blockchain gaming legitimately could be one of the largest private employers in the world. Um, you know, because right now we have a huge disparity in economic prosperity, you know, like, like five dollars is all you need as i was saying before in the philippines like five to seven dollars a day is all you need to get by whereas in mm. sydney like that couldn't even buy you breakfast um right. you know so having access to these these they're like finan financial platforms but also games like having access to these will mm. do a lot for uh, distributing wealth around the world i feel like nice yeah it feels like you know, leveraging the true power of the internet um, and connecting everyone, it seems like a logical step to solving some of these issues we have, particularly in wealth inequality. Um, so I do want to wrap up shortly, but uh, is there anything else that you wanted to mention 
um, either regarding the bipolar stuff or or crypto and maybe an opportunity to plug your podcast as well? <laughs> yeah, sure. So, I mean, first of all, if anybody wants to reach out and have a chat about either mental health or crypto, I'm always eager to talk about either one. Uh, so hit up Luke and then he'll he'll give you my contact details and hit up me. Uh, in terms of the podcast, it's called The Scoop. So The Scoop from The Block is my company. Um, we try not to make it too technical. So honestly, most people should be able to get around it and get something out of it. Um, but yeah, no, in terms of in terms of wrapping up here, I, I guess I realized in saying all of that, that for me, working in crypto is pretty similar to what I wanted to do in human rights, which is, you know, just help everybody try to have more equal opportunities to succeed so that the people that really have a drive or a passion or motivation to succeed can, and there isn't any structural inequalities stacked against them. Um, so I think, I think crypto does that as well. And I think that's why, that's why I like it. And that's why I was drawn to it. Um, just to kind of tie, tie that up there, close that, close that circle. Excellent. Well, thanks very much, Davis. I really appreciate you coming on and, um, I'll have to have you back at some point. Yeah, definitely. Love to come back. Nice chatting with you. Thank you. Have a good one. All right. Well, that was Davis Quinton talking about bipolar, crypto. But you know this. You just listened to the episode. So, yeah. Thanks a bunch. We've got some more guests lined up. And we will be back soon. I love you and have a great day.